1: our regular roundup of the creme de la creme of the week's stories, plus a few that might take you by surprise. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio, and on your menu, the Chilean farmers fighting drought by harvesting the mist is the era of ownership on its way out, and a dispatch from the land of the midnight sun. But first, after a news-heavy week, The Economist had three different cover stories around the world. In Britain, we tried to decipher another week of Brexit chaos. While in Asia and the Americas, we took stock after Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un's historic handshake. But in the rest of the world, we took a longer view. Almost 30 years after Francis Fukuyama proclaimed the end of history, our cover
0: leader asked, is democracy in trouble? Indices of the health of democracy show alarming deterioration since the financial crisis of 2007 to 8. The most worrying deterioration, going by both the number of countries and the speed of retreat, is in the fragile young democracies of the emerging world. From Venezuela to Hungary, these reversals reveal striking similarities. The sickening of a democracy seems to have four stages. First, comes a genuine popular grievance with the status quo and, often, with the liberal elites who are in charge. Second, would-be strongmen identify enemies for angry voters to blame. Having won power by exploiting fear or discontent, strongmen chisel away at a free press, an impartial justice system and other institutions that form the liberal part of liberal democracy – Eventually, in Stage 4, the erosion of liberal institutions leads to the death of democracy in all but name. But it isn't necessarily terminal. In recent weeks, Malaysians voted out Najib Razak and the UMNO party that had ruled since independence. Protesters in Armenia broke a decade of one-party rule. Even Turkey is not doomed. Opposition parties have a good chance of winning control of parliament this month offered some effective remedies. The main one is that institutions matter. Western democracy promotion has often focused on the quality of elections. In fact, independent judges and noisy journalists are democracy's first line of defence. And we argued that strong, healthy democracies have a responsibility to their peaky-looking neighbours. America's powerful institutions will constrain President Donald Trump at home. But they do not stop his contempt for democratic norms, the serial lying, the cozying with dictators, from giving cover to would-be autocrats. Reports of the death of democracy are greatly exaggerated. But the least bad system of government ever devised is in trouble. It needs defenders. But as we've seen in recent
1: months, Western democracies themselves are not immune. Our latest guest on The Economist Asks, our chat show, was the former American ambassador to Russia, Michael McFall. I asked him how the West should respond to Russian meddling in its democratic
0: processes. We haven't responded, I don't think, in a strategic way. Uh, For instance, we haven't built up our resilience of our computers and our networks that are responsible for counting the votes. We're still vulnerable. Two, on disinformation – we as a society, we as a government, what's the responsibility of companies to inform their readers about what is uh, propagated and what is circulated on their platforms? You know, my own view is that they should at least tell them the origins of that content so, so uh, their readers should, should know who is producing the content. But even that is a controversial idea within America today. So I think we're still learning how we deal with these new technologies and these new methods.
1: A couple of weeks ago, we asked listeners what you thought humans' main source of energy would be 100 years from now. Many of you thought solar with good reason. The sector's grown at 40% a year for two decades. But that sunny horizon is clouding over. Henry Tricks, our energy editor, popped into our Money Talks podcast to tell us more.
2: If this is a solar coaster, you have to picture China as very much the first wagon in the carriage it leads the industry up and uh, it takes the industry over the precipice last year it accounted for half of the solar capacity that was installed around the world but it's come at a cost the subsidy bill or rather the deficit in its subsidy finances has now reached about 19 billion dollars And there is so much capacity that actually it's having to stop solar and let other power plants run uh, because there's just too much.
1: A surplus of sun, not often our problem here in London. This week, the paper was particularly full of ingenious ways to harness the power of nature. In the America's section, our correspondent visited Los Tomes in Chile,
2: which has endured a decade of drought. Hope for Los Tomes in Chile's Coquimbo region comes in the form of 360 square meter nets stretched between poles on a ridge above the community. These atrapanieblas capture droplets from the fog that rolls in from the sea 4 kilometers, that's 2.5 miles away. They trickle down to a pipe which channels the water to two troughs at the foot of the ridge. From which livestock drink, these farmers are turning mist into money. At Mahada Blanca, a goat herding community north of Los Tomes, three 150 square meter fog catchers feed a plantation of young olive trees, a splash of green in the brown scrub. When the trees mature, they will produce 750 liters of organic olive oil a year which the Comuneros will be able to sell for about $12,000. It's the fog that keeps on giving. We'll be pioneers in the production of quality olive oil made with fog water, says one of them, Ricardo Alvarez. A privately owned brewery in Peña Blanca was quick to spot fog water's marketing appeal. It is the main ingredient of its artisanal beer, called Atrapaniebla, if parched Kokimbo is to catch more people, it will need more fog catchers. You're probably used to your podcast being punctuated by messages
1: encouraging you to subscribe, and bear with us. You can get your first 12 issues of The Economist for just $12 by going to economist.com/radiooffer. But in recent years, the range of things you can subscribe to has exploded, from music streaming to office space. In our latest science and technology podcast, Babbage, Tianzhuo, the founder of Zuora, a subscription software company, argued that owning stuff is so 20th century.
2: Well, I'll make a big, bold claim. I think 10 years from now, you and I, we won't need to own anything. We won't need to own our houses. We won't need to own our cars. We won't need to own anything. Just think about lots of people now just go from Airbnb to Airbnb on a monthly basis to explore the world. And this is where the world is going. I I think 10 years from now, there won't be a need to actually own anything. So we'll end up owning a smartphone and underwear, and that'll basically be it, and a rucksack. Well, there's lots of services out there. There's, uh, there, there's, there's subscription sock companies. There's subscription underwear companies. Uh, uh, oh, my God, it's already happening. <laughs> it's already happening.
1: One of our listeners wasn't so sure. Halima Brewer wrote in to say, What about people who have little or no money? What about the homeless or the mentally ill or disabled? How can everyone be included in a subscription economy? As normal, economists seem to be thinking of a phantom population without its usual problem of income distribution. Well, what do you think? Write to us about this or any of our stories. Radio at economist.com. We do enjoy reading you. Meanwhile, in the business section of this week's paper, our correspondent lifted the lid on an altogether more sinister subscription economy. The pizzo, paid by Sicilian businesses for
2: protection by and from the mafia. Nearly half pay up these days, according to estimates from the Confartigenato, a national business association, a big improvement from the early 1990s when at least four-fifths of Sicilian firms paid it. This is partly thanks to plucky anti-pizzo groups, making it easier for businesses to rebel. One is Addio Pizzo. Goodbye Pizzo in Palermo, which advises businesses on pressing charges against crooks. Adio Pizzo has endorsed as Pizzo Free 1,045 and counting businesses in Palermo and surrounding areas that display window stickers to discourage would-be extortionists. But for nearly half of businesses, the Pizzo is still an offer they really can't refuse. An operation may begin with a squirt of superglue in a shop's keyhole or a bottle of petrol left on a doorstep. Mafia members might threaten a new bar's prospects by starting drunken brawls. Such ops are word-of-mouth marketing for Pizzo compliance in a targeted area, notes Giuseppe Tadaro, an entrepreneur in Cinisi near Palermo, who handed over about €245,000 in 17 years. The price of protection.
1: And finally, let's follow the summer sun north until the land ends. A correspondent for our United States section sent a dispatch from Utkiakvik, America's most northerly settlement, which will not see another sunset until
0: August or until the Scrabble letters run out. The community's name means the place where we hunt snowy owls, but out on the jumbled sea ice that stretches from town to the horizon, local residents are focused on bowhead whales. Culturally and nutritionally, bowheads are the most important subsistence food species for native residents in this isolated settlement, accessible only by air or by sea during the short summer months when the water is open.
1: It takes practice to land a bowhead. Luckily, the residents of Atkiakvik have been doing it for thousands of years.
0: Bowhead are beamy black whales, the size of a school bus and a half at most, with a characteristic downturned jaw. Hunters paddle umiaks, whale boats made from the skin of bearded seals stretched over wooden frames. Once a crew has struck a whale other crews pitch in to help land the animal, using motorised aluminium skiffs and block and tackle. The future of this tradition is at the mercy of climate change. But recent surveys show that bowhead populations are doing well, probably because warming temperatures in the Arctic are increasing the availability of food. So for now, the hunt continues. A pair of bowhead rib bones form an arch at the edge of the beach, by 9pm, as the sun is finally dropping towards the horizon, the arch casts a long shadow across the snow. Far out on the ice and in the indigo waters of the Arctic Ocean, the whaling crews of Utqiagvik are still working. That's all
1: for this week's tasting menu. I'm off to track down some of that fogwater beer. Remember, you can get more of the stories you've sampled here online at economist.com. I'm Anne McAlvoy in London. This is The Economist.